0: When you hear the term flight surgeon, do you picture a military medical doctor performing surgery in the back of some specially adapted aircraft? Well, you might be surprised to find that's not quite the case. So what are flight surgeons? How are they trained and what duties do they perform? Do they actually get to fly? And do they care for only pilots or other aircrew and even astronauts? Stay tuned because we answer all these questions and many more this week here on the Fighter Pilot Podcast.
1: Strap in for the Fighter Pilot Podcast, the internet radio show that explores the fascinating world of air combat, the aircraft, the weapon systems, and most importantly, the people. Now, here's your host, retired U.S. Navy Fighter Pilot, Vincent Aiello.
0: Hello, and welcome to the Fighter Pilot Podcast. This is episode 130. I am your host, Jello. And that's right. Today, we're talking all about flight surgeons with our guest, Lieutenant Colonel Rocky Jeddick of the United States Air Force Reserve, who will be along shortly. But first, having a wingman is always a good idea, and I definitely need some help with today's topic. So returning as co-host from all the way back on episode six, the show we titled Pulling G's is now retired US Navy Commander Sue J. Welcome back to the show, Cyclone. Jello. Hello. <laughs>
2: it's a pleasure to be back speaking with you, and thank you for the invitation.
0: You're welcome. It's great to have you back. So let's see, hold on. You were on the show, gosh, four years ago, believe it or not. And at the time you were about to retire from the Navy and head off, I think to the FAA. So catch us up. What's new since we heard from you last?
2: Yes, indeed. I did retire and I am currently employed by the FAA. So I get to continue what I love most, which is physiology and aviation. So I'm a research physiologist for the FAA Civil Aerospace Medical Institute, CAMI, Ah. which is in Oklahoma City. I'm a research physiologist for them, and I'm the team lead for the Aerospace and Environmental Physiology Research Lab.
0: Fantastic. All right, so a lot of physiology in there. Now, this episode is on flight surgeons, Mm -hmm. and you were in the Navy, an aerospace operational physiologist, and we'll compare and contrast the two afterwards. But any big picture thoughts on this interview before we get to it? And we're changing up the format a little bit. We're going to go pretty much right to the interview, but any big picture thoughts?
2: You know, flight docs and physiologists, you know, we work together collaboratively to keep you, the pilot and air crew in the aircraft and flying. So just flight surgeons in general, they are, you know, primary care physicians. So they treat illness and injuries and they diagnose aircrew and things of that nature and physiologists we are subject matter experts and just about everything else so air medical safety and the human performance aspects of flight
0: all right well we will dig into those similarities and differences a little bit here after the episode but let's get right to it here we go with our feature interview on flight surgeons Rocky Jedick is a lieutenant colonel in the United States Air Force Reserve. He's also a medical doctor, an MBA board certified emergency room doc. He's a flight surgeon in the Air Force Reserve and a senior aviation medical examiner in the FAA. And today, he's our fighter pilot podcast guest. How's it going there, Apollo?
3: Hey, Jello. Good to see you, man. Thanks for having me.
0: Yeah, thanks for being here. We've been trying this for a couple months now and glad we were finally able to get it to work between my airline schedule and your busy schedule. It's been uh, pretty challenging.
3: Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah. Glad we could finally find a, a small window to be able to both be free here. Yeah. It's good to be here.
0: Nobody else knows this, but you and I do. This is take two. We've had some wifi <laughs> issues so far. So let's see if we can power through this time. But anyway, I'm sure I've missed a lot of two and three letter identifiers for you, if you will, and where you are and what you're doing and all that. So let's start at the beginning. Where are you from? Where'd you go to school? What'd you do in the military and what are you doing now?
3: Yeah, man. So I grew up in Cleveland, Ohio. I did all my school in Ohio as well. I went to Ohio State for undergrad and then to Wright State for medical school. And the Air Force folks will know about wright Pad Air Force Base. And that's Mm -hmm. where the Wright brothers were living when they uh, invented the Wright Flyer. And that's Wright State, their namesake. But I went to medical school there. And the medical school there is intimately tied with the Air Force. We have the School of Aerospace Medicine there. So I started to learn a lot about aviation medicine right away from the get-go. And Chose to join the military, signed on the dotted line, and joined the Air Force as a med student. Ended up becoming a flight surgeon, and I did that for about five years, active duty, and was stationed in Korea and Italy with A-10s and then F-16s. And then separated from active duty, I went to emergency medicine residency out here in Utah, which is where I'm talking to you at right now, which, as you know, is a Delta hub. Then I started to uh, dabble in aviation medicine with the FAA, so became an AME. And continue my service with the military, with the Air National Guard, and then I moved to Air Force Reserve, and I'm in the process of moving back to the Air National Guard. So I'm a flight surgeon with the Air Force and still doing aviation medicine with the FAA. My full-time job is working in the ER, both in Las Vegas and Salt Lake City, taking care of people in that setting too. So yeah, keeping pretty busy. And then, as you know, I have this aviation medicine, go-flight medicine blog that I started and doing some consulting in that space as well. So it's been pretty fun.
0: Fantastic. And let's certainly explore that. And I think I read that you also do some wilderness and mountain medicine. So you're kind of all over the place.
3: Yeah, it's definitely been an interest of mine. The University of Utah has a good reputation for their wilderness medicine program, which is one of the reasons why I wanted to come out here. We're so close to the mountains. I did my diploma in mountain medicine. It's been working on that for two years and finally completed that last February with this course in Vermont with the um, Army School of Mountain Warfare. So essentially taking care of people in an alpine setting, you know, in a very austere environment, learning about frostbite and uh, acute mountain sickness and hape and all these different conditions that mountaineers are affected by. And I like to dabble in climbing and skiing. And, mountaineering. So it's fun. Yeah. That's kind of more of a side hustle and a hobby for me. (laughs)
0: That's awesome. Well, so the subject for today is flight surgeons and I'm thinking about this discussion in two parts. One will be, what are they, what do they do, et cetera. And then I think for the young listeners who tune into this show, it'd be instrumental for them to talk about some of the hiccups that people encounter Mm -hmm. getting into military aviation. And then what you see as a flight doc from once you've been doing it a little while. And I think no surprise there, we've talked about it before, between the neck and shoulder and upper back and all the other ailments that we have. But let's start with, I mean, what is a flight surgeon and talk a little bit about the name?
3: Yeah, so a uh, flight surgeon, it's inherently a misnomer. You know, I've had people ask me when I tell them, oh, it's a flight surgeon, or they see a flight surgeon on your CV. They say, oh, so you practice surgery on an airplane. It's like, no, I wish I did that, but uh, <laughs> not nearly as exciting or sexy as that. The term surgeon is historical and it's a misnomer, kind of like the Surgeon General or in the Army, they call him the Battalion Surgeon. That kind of goes back to the time period where a surgeon and a physician were interchangeable. Not the categories we have now where a surgeon is someone that operates in an OR doing a very specific skill set. So a flight surgeon kind of bore out of the military side of aviation. What we do is we basically provide primary care to pilots and other aircrew, but we have to always apply the medical standards to the pilot just to make sure that they're safe, they're healthy, and that they're not going to potentially be involved in a flight incident due to a medical condition. So we're kind of the gatekeepers, which, as you know, um, lends to a somewhat unusual relationship between the physician and the patient. I know you guys don't love coming to see the flight doc or the flight surgeon. There's always some anxiety there. (laughs) That's what the military flight doc does. And then the civilian or FAA AME, we call them aviation medical examiner. That's what the FAA calls us. Rather are kind of the gatekeepers for the FAA. The standards aren't quite as strict. We could kind of talk specifically about some of those differences. And the other big difference there is the FAA doc doesn't really work as your primary care doctor. Right. You know, you go and you get medicine elsewhere to whatever doctors you're seeing. You bring all those records to see the AME, and the AME just kind of rubber stamps it and maybe does some additional checks on your vision and some other things. But then sends all that to the FAA. But they don't really see you in between those six month or annual medical clearances.
0: So a flight surgeon will have some specialized training in various things that apply to aviators, right? So what, decompression sickness or physiological events like some of the leans and different things we get? I mean, will you have some formal training in those areas?
3: Yeah, definitely, and especially the military flight docs. I mean, the FAA right. docs do go through some didactics to become an AME, but in the military we go through almost six months of training. A lot of that is even aviation training where we're actually logging hours and they work with the flight school and then we're getting specific training in all these different things that you mentioned, all these environmental conditions that are unique to aviation medicine. So you mentioned like decompression sickness, the high G environment, radiation exposure, spatial disorientation. We go through centrifuge training. We go through the altitude chamber, all the same training that the pilots and the air crew go through so that we kind of understand that, as you know, a big aspect of medicine in the military is to do education. One of the things I had to do as an F-16 flight doc was review HUD tapes with my guys and fill out a checklist of how competent they were in the AGSM or, you know, like how well they were doing that and talk about ways to improve that. And so there was a lot of educational interaction from the aerospace physiology side in the military.
0: AGSM being the anti-G straining maneuver. We talked about that way back on an early episode. Yeah. So you are right there with the squadron. In your case, in the F-16, you get to fly, maybe not so much in the A-10, but I guess that's one of the perks, right, of the flight surgeon is you're out there with the Bubba's doing it, experiencing it. Mm -hmm. And as you intimated, you're sort of the gatekeeper and a little bit like someone you want to avoid also, but you kind of hold the keys to the airplane in a sense, don't you? Because if I come to you with an ailment, and it's downing, then you've taken away my toys, and no aviator wants to sit on the bench.
3: Yeah, no, definitely. That's why I think <laughs> it's so important for, and you can tell me if this is correct, but for the pilots and the air crew to really be able to trust their flight doc and know that you know that they're going to get a fair shake because there's good ones and bad ones. You know, I mean, some people, especially in the military, sometimes you're being told to go into flight medicine, and it's just because you didn't match into dermatology and you have no interest in the specialty. There's some docs that are in that category, and then there's other docs that like myself and flight docs that I'm friends with that thought aviation medicine just seemed like a kick-ass amazing opportunity and being able to fly in fast jets as well as practice medicine seemed like a dream come true you know and those guys I think are very different you know in terms of like working with the pilots and wanting to you know advocate for that pilot keep him flying versus you know maybe wanting to uh, have a little bit of a power trip and and like you said take away the keys just because you can so I think you guys really quickly figure out which doc you're seeing but there's probably a lot of anxiety when you're just getting essentially assigned to some random doc and you don't know this person from Adam. And that's why the air force and the military has tried to embed flight docs in the squadrons so that we do build trust. And that's part of the reason why we fly with you guys. That's one of several reasons why.
0: In the Navy, they wouldn't necessarily be part of the squadron, but they would be part of the air wing. And so you'd have a couple for each air wing and they would come hang out with you like on deployment in the ready room and sit through your training, but also fly with you if they could. Right now, I was usually in single seat F-18 squadrons, but they would get to fly in the two seat. Hornet squadrons or Super Hornet squadrons or the F-14. Mm-hmm. You know, look, you said there's good ones and bad ones. That's true of any profession. I would suggest, and yeah. and so they have standards they have to stick to, right? So they're not going to just rubber stamp or wave. Oh, gee, you know, Jello's missing an eyeball, but we'll send them flying. You know, mm-hmm. there's certain standards and uh, manuals that they've got to keep because look, it's dangerous business.
3: Yeah, for sure. You know, flight safety is taught to us to be paramount, but you may or may not know a lot of the medical standards in some areas, some of them are very black and white, but some of them are open to interpretation. Mm. You know, if you have a flight doc that wants to interpret something very, very conservatively and be really hard on you, they can. And if you have another flight doc that says, okay, well, let's like really consider how this impacts flight safety, or let's at least reach out to the higher level approving authorities and find out what we need to do here versus just, you know, taking away someone's status. There's different approaches, you know, so Mm -hmm. there's lots of gray areas that I think that Individual flight docs can exercise depending on, you know, their level of comfort, their understanding of the medical standards, or just like their willingness to kind of work with their patient or their pilot, you know?
0: Right. So when I became a pilot in the military, the Navy, in this case, trained me to do that. So let's talk about the training for a flight surgeon. Will they train you in your medical and everything else, or do you need to get all that before you come in?
3: There's a couple different ways you can join military medicine. There's actually a military medicine medical school in Bethesda, where it's all services. I didn't do that. A lot of guys go in through that way. I joined as a med student. So they have different programs to incentivize you by paying for part of your tuition if you give back some time as a military doc. And that doesn't necessarily mean you're going to be a flight doc. So we go through this entire process called the match when we match into residencies. You know, I chose to go straight to flight medicine and do that for a little while. Once you get selected to be a flight doc, they put you through the School of Aerospace Medicine, which when I did it was at Brooks City Base in San Antonio. And now it's at wright Pat where the School of Aerospace Medicine is. And so you go out there and you do a variety of classes. They also, like I mentioned before, they hook you up with an uh, aviation flight instruction school. You start to actually fly sorties. You start to you know learn about aviation. When I did it, we went through the exact same SEER course, so the survival course that the pilots and the air crew went through. We did the emergency parachute, went out to Pensacola, did water survival training, like I mentioned, the centrifuge, the altitude chamber, NVG training. So we do all that. You know, Then you get assigned to a unit. And yeah, I was fortunate to get fighters in both cases, and also get to be the type of flight doc that gets embedded into a squadron. I think you mentioned that that doesn't happen in the Navy, but in the Air Force, there's two different main categories of flight docs. they are the ones that are in the med group that are owned by you know the medical group and are going to be answering to a physician in terms of their leadership, and then there's the one that, that I was, which was in the Air Force called the squadron medical element. That's the one that was the most desired position, which is when you were actually in the squadron. So your leadership and your supervision was a pilot. You were in the ops group. They owned you, but you also enjoyed being their personal doc. They took you everywhere with you. So whenever my squadron would deploy or go TDY, you know, I'd jump in the backseat of that F-16. I'd fly to the site with them. I'd pack up my medical equipment. I'd have a couple of med techs and we'd set up shop and we'd take care of all the guys and gals for that particular deployment. And it was a really cool experience. And you really built I think really unique bonds in that way, yeah. you did become a trusted member of the squadron. You'd go to the roll calls, you'd get a call sign if they thought you were a decent guy. <laughs> and uh, it was a lot of fun, a lot of fun.
0: Yeah. I had a chance to fly with one of the flight docs in Fallon, Nevada towards the end of my career. Mm-hmm. And we were coming into the break and he was in the back seat, and I made some comment like, oh man, and he goes, what? You know, he's a little bit nervous, whatever. I said, this is almost over. I'm retiring soon. And he goes, well, not today. It was so profound. I ended up writing a little blog about it on our website. But those guys, the few times I was able to fly them when I did fly the two-seaters, they were always very eager to go, very understanding of, hey, this is your domain, but let me help or let me do what I can. I always thought it was cool to get those guys out there and kind of show them the world that they have to, in a sense, not officiate, but I'm not sure what else word to use. But you know, it gives them, I think, a better understanding of the different situations that, uh, aircrew go through and what it takes as far as on your body and all that. And so, like you said, yeah. right? you did the centrifuge, you did the water survival, you did the NVG. So I think getting in the airplane is probably really valuable.
3: It's second to none. I mean, it was just such a cool experience because I think there's the recognition by the flight doc. You're not the fighter pilot, you know, you're not the aviator, but you're kind of being given a glimpse of this world. For me, it was always just, I was really grateful when one of my pilots would they call me and say, Hey, we got a D model open. You want to come over and fly? You know, I'd like, yeah, I'm on my way. You know, that'd be awesome to be part of that world, to go to the roll calls and see that culture and then kind of be brought into it was always a really enjoyable experience for me. But yeah, we learned so much in terms of we're trying to teach the pilots about the AGSM. Like you mentioned, the anti-G straining maneuver. If you haven't been up there and experienced high G's, and you haven't done BFM, like you don't know what you're talking about until you actually get in there and you do it. That's right. You know, and you learn a lot from those experiences. I had a particular incident I remember where we had a cabin depressurization and I was the first one that noticed that something was off. I said something to my pilot. I said, Hey, you know, I noticed my ears popping. And is there something with the cabin pressure before he didn't even respond? It just immediately, just as soon as I said that, just, we're now just, nose down, just you know losing it descending very, very quickly and taking emergency procedures and then after the flight, he said, yeah, I think it was actually in a it wasn't a red flag, but it was another pretty complicated European exercise that we were doing, and so there was oh, cool. a lot going on, and I don't think he actually even recognized that until I mentioned it, and then all of a sudden you know like he did recognize that we had a, a cabin leak, and I even felt a little hypoxic at that moment too, so it was a, there were some cool experiences, yeah that I had along the
0: way. (laughs) Well, cool that it worked out okay in that case. But all the fleets, I feel like I've had cabin issues, uh, cabin pressure issues, I should say. And of course, spatial disorientation and hypoxia. And there's a lot of threats. And so you had a chance to experience that yourself. Rocky, I've been seen, if you will, by 03 flight surgeons and 06 flight surgeons. What can you tell me about the Mm -hmm. career path? I mean, do you get increasing levels of responsibility or do you just continue in rank but kind of still do the same things? But if you stay in the military, what does it look like for a career flight surgeon?
3: I don't know how it is in the Navy. Again, I'll speak to the Air Force, but I think the most fun is always had in your younger years. The Air Force definitely likes to push all their officers into leadership positions, and that's similar in aviation and in medicine. You know, we don't have warrant officers or anything like that. So for the flight docs, you know, like I said, being a squadron medical element, being in the unit and being able to be part of that team and be able to fly a lot is something that you really only do as a 03, maybe as an 04. And then once you get up to Lieutenant Colonel 06 type of positions, you know, you're in a leadership position. The one area that may vary is the guys that get out and do the reserves and the guard. There's ways you can kind of, they do be able to do both and ways you're able to, I think maybe try to delay the promotions in favor of being able to kind of do some cool operational stuff.
0: <laughs> yeah. The AME I use here in San Diego, uh, I'm not sure what his rank is, but he still flies with the F uh, five guys up in Fallon. And he always has a big smile on his face when I ask him about his last detachment up there. Cause he's a reservist, like, you, you know, kind of thing. And mm-hmm. it's good because you get to go enjoy all those things. So That's pretty cool. Can you make flag as a flight surgeon? Is there a path for that? Yeah. I guess you would call it general officer. Hmm?
3: You know, um, a lot of the, I can't remember what the term is actually, I think the air national guards, like the the air surgeon, they may call them are one stars. And obviously if you're active duty, you can definitely uh, become a flag officer as well. Okay, I mean, at that point you're in pretty much a leadership position over the entire air force. I mean, it's not like within a particular wing or a base that you can, those is where you're going to probably level off as like a med group commander at a base level.
0: And then for aircrew, because they pour so much money and time into training you, there is a, what we'd call a green main, right? An agreement to remain on active duty mm-hmm. for a period of time. Do flight surgeons have something like that when you come in, do you have to stay a certain amount of time for them to justify the time they spent training you?
3: Yeah, definitely. I mean, it kind of depends on your path. Entering. I did a three year program as one year for one year. So they paid for three years of medical school, and my requirement was three years of um, military service. That doesn't count residency. So it's after training. I ended up staying for five. You know, I enjoyed it enough that I finished my requirement and stayed in. The guys that go to the military medical school, I think they end up with like a 10 year commitment, and those years are active duty years while they're in medical school. So it kind of depends on your path in. Probably similar with you guys if you come in via Academy versus Roxy and stuff. I think, I don't mm-hmm. know. The requirement differs depending on the path it does for us.
0: I think just by going to the academy or enrolling in ROTC, you get some sort of agreement. But as soon as Mm -hmm. you go into flight training, generally, like for me in 1992, it was eight years after you receive your wings and it took two Mm -hmm. or three years to get your wings. So you were already halfway through a career at that point. All right, cool. So you mentioned it, but you get to fly. But what happened like when you were at your A-10 squadron? Did you try to go fly in something else on the base or did you just accept that in single seat squadrons, it's a little bit harder?
3: We have a flight requirement as a flight doc in the Air Force. So it's four hours a month Hmm. that we have to fly to continue our flight pay and remain current. If you're in a fighter unit, obviously that means you have to fly three or four times a month. So
0: pretty much every week. (laughs) Gee, bummer
3: yeah i know it's great so you know my weekly schedule when i was in f-16 squadron you know i'd fly one day a, a week clinic three days a week and then one day a week i would do admin or shop visits and things like that occupational health stuff but when i was in the a10 unit since you still have that front flight requirement you have to go get flight hours doing other things so i would sometimes fly with the f-16 unit we had on base but our aeronautical orders that were on as flight surgeons in the air force at least allow us to fly in any dod aircraft oh, cool. so when i was in korea obviously i can't fly in the a10 i don't think there's I think there were maybe, I heard that there were maybe two two-seater A-10s ever created and <laughs> neither of which are still flying at all, but it's not an aircraft that we can log time in. So we would either go to the Army side, Army post, and we'd fly with either the rotary wing or their fixed wing aircraft. We also had an F-16 unit when I was at Korea that we could get some hours with as well. It's easier to get those hours and get those seats when you're in that squadron just because you know those guys so well. But I was in the A-10 unit, but I would sometimes fly with the F-16 unit as well.
0: Now you've already said a couple of times you're not totally sure about some of the day-to-day differences for the Navy, but I would assume the Army, the Navy, and the Air Force all have flight surgeons. Are you familiar at all with any of the differences in whether it's the training or what they do? I would assume there are a lot of commonalities, but maybe not.
3: I think the biggest difference that I'm aware of is just we use different medical standards. So you're applying different standards. And I think the armies are probably less strict and you know a lot of what they're dealing with is rotary wing. And so I think the space that the flight surgeon has in the army. Maybe a little bit different than the Navy and the Air Force. I can't really speak to the day-to-day activities between the differences. You might know more about that than I do. It sounds like at least one difference is that the Navy flight docks aren't necessarily embedded within the specific units like we are in the Air Force.
0: Well, again, it would be in the air wing, especially if we're deployed on a carrier, they're going to be part of the air wing. And then they just look after all the different squadrons. And they might have, as I recall, maybe if there was two or three flight docks, they might have one that's kind of over these couple squadrons and another over those couple squadrons. But in the end, whoever's available, you can see all of them and you get to know all of them because of course you're confined on the ship. So
3: let me ask you this question. Did the Navy flight docks, did they go to your roll calls and your namings? Were they invited to those?
0: Yeah. Generally speaking. I mean, if you were doing something social and they were available, yeah, they'd come.
3: Yeah. I always thought that was pretty fun. Actually, that's actually funny. That was one environment that I would often need to be on high alert because uh, I treated probably more injuries at roll calls than almost any other time. (laughs) (laughs) And for the funniest reasons why too, It's I mean, the stories are just crazy.
0: Oh, for sure. Well, that's why it's such a great career, but Hey, Apollo, let's pivot now into as much as you are aware of it, some of the requirements medically of folks who aspire to being military aviators. I mean, I think there's some obvious ones, right? You can't be wheelchair bound. Uh, you can't be missing limbs. You generally speaking have to have pretty good vision, but can you talk to some of the things that you are aware of or have seen, or just from your experience, you know, of that have kind of tripped people up as far as just even getting in the door?
3: Yeah. So again, there's huge differences between civilian and military or medical standards with the military being much more strict, and it completely makes sense why. You're flying single-seat aircraft. You're know, you actually going to war and completing other very strenuous tasks while you're flying an aircraft. And actually, in the Air Force side, the medical standards would differ depending on even which type of aircraft you're going to get in. So there might be some medical standards that are specific only to single-seat aircraft or to fighters, high-performance aircraft, that don't apply to some of the larger airframes. Generally, there's some big picture things that military and approval authorities consider. So yeah, anything that would lend itself to what we call sudden incapacitation, you know, if you could without any forewarning become suddenly incapacitated, you all of a sudden have a seizure or you have a cardiac arrhythmia that causes you to pass out. I mean, those are types of situations that are absolutely no goes, right? Mm -hmm. Other things that people may not be aware of unless they're in the game is there's actually different standards for people that are untrained versus trained assets. And so if the military has already invested, you know, millions of dollars in you, they're going to be more likely to approve you for a waiver, or there may be something that is waiverable for someone that's a trained asset versus if you're coming in fresh, you know, there might be a hard no versus if you've been in the game for a little while, you know, you can get a waiver for that. So all right. the air force never, and again, I'm, I'm talking specifically the air force, but I think this applies to all the branches. They never really change their standards for an individual person, but they'll waive that standard for that person. If all of a sudden you don't meet medical standards anymore, you have to go through this process of the flight surgeon kind of collecting all your medical records, having to see the, the specialists you need to see, putting together this package, so to speak, and sending it up to the waiver approval authority. And then if they stamp it approved, then that standard has been waived for you. And it's usually for a certain period of time. And that period of time will be dependent on what the condition is, how likely it's thought to progress versus how static it is. There's lots of myths, though, in these medical standards as well. I have people, you know, I do this consulting business as well where I have people contact me for aviation medicine consulting. And It's kind of two groups of people. One group will be people that are just interested in becoming a pilot, and they're not yet. And, you know, they're concerned about something on their medical record. They want some questions answered. The other person is maybe someone that's already a pilot, and now they're experiencing symptoms or been diagnosed with a medical condition, and they're, they're a little bit anxious too, and they want some consulting. But the most common thing that I get from the, the first category is someone's, hey, I don't have perfect vision. And I'm like, mm-hmm. okay, well, can you get glasses or contacts that get you perfect vision? You know, can you get 20-20? And if the answer to that question is yes. Like, you know, you pass medical standards if you can get to 20-20 or all the different reasons or ways that we measure vision, you know, depth perception and color vision and things, things like that. But a lot of the lay population isn't aware of that. You know, how many people have you had tell you probably, I wanted to be a fighter pilot too, and I would have, but I didn't have perfect vision. You know, <laughs> like, it's like the cop-out, you know?
0: I get those emails all the time.
3: And there's a variety of other things that you see on people's medical histories that is common that people think disqualify them, but don't, right?
0: Okay. The point is, there are some big picture, like, absolutely not type of topics, if you will. And then there are some where they might say, well, no, but you can go get another exam and you can submit a waiver and we'll consider it. Because, let me ask you this, I mean, obviously, it's a safety issue. I mean, we're flying high-performance aircraft in close proximity to other aircraft, carrying ordnance and everything else. So clearly there's a safety aspect of it. But do you think there's also an element of medical requirements that are for selection process? Because if you've got 100 candidates and you're only going to take 20, and you got to narrow it down by something, why not narrow it down by the most medically fit or physiologically fit? Do you think there's something to that or is that wrong?
3: No, I think 100% you want to select someone that has the longevity that's going to be able to do the job for the longest period of time. As long as you have a big pool of applicants, right? You always see them start to weigh the standards more when they're not getting, when the demand's not there. But if they have a big pool of applicants, they want people that are going to remain healthy. And it's not an easy job, you know, flying a single seat, high performance, high G aircraft. It's not something you can do, you know, for 20, 30 years without, you know, having some effects on your body. And, they want to give people the best chance possible. So they're going to try to select for people that are as healthy as possible. They're going to be able to do it for the longest period of time. It's kind of even like, I think just yesterday, NASA came out with their newest class. I don't know if you saw that of astronauts. No, it didn't. Yeah. They just published that their newest yeah. class of astronauts. And so, you know, like I know I did a, um, an elective in space medicine at Johnson space center, and there's a pretty crazy screening process when you get down to the final 40 candidates where they have them come in and they get, there's a battery of psychological and physical tests, including <laughs> MRIs. And that's all pre-screening. So it's kind of built into the system. And, you know, obviously the astronaut class is a much smaller group of people. And what they're experiencing up there is um, right. definitely extreme. But, yeah, I mean, it's, it's built into the system to try to help people last as long as possible.
0: But it's a best guess, right? Because if you've got candidate A and B and A has some minor issue that B doesn't have, you might think B is the better candidate, but who knows that candidate B is going to be more prone to getting cancer or something down the road. But the point is right now today, you've got to look at the available information and make your best guess. And if someone has an issue and someone doesn't, it's fairly black and white, I would think.
3: Yeah, definitely.
0: Okay. Well, I will tell you just a quick C story on that. So I didn't get into the Naval Academy right away, didn't get a four-year scholarship, didn't get to UCLA with all these things I was trying to do, but finally did get into UCLA as a transfer student and got a two-year scholarship. And so I went off to the little six-week catch-up over the summer and got to the unit. I'm thinking, all right, I'm finally on track. And I get a letter from the Navy that said, Dear midshipman Aiello, based on this medical history of yours, and I'll explain that in a second, not only will you not be fit for pilot duty, but you're not fit for military service. Uh-oh. And I said, holy smokes. And what it was is, and I forget the exact term, you might know it, but as a kid in grade school, they'd brought the little hearing van there and tested all the kids. And I had lower hearing in my left ear than my right. So they said, oh, you should have your kid checked. So I went over to an ear, nose and throat guy and he looked in there and he goes, yeah, you got a little cyst. So he goes, I can remove that. No problem. So I've had surgery, I think 12 or 13 years old and they removed it. And my hearing on my left ear has never been as good as my right. But based on that surgery, they thought that I wasn't even fit for military service at all. I went back to the doctor who happened to be a former Air Force flight surgeon. And I said, hey, can you help me with this? He goes, oh, yeah, that's dumb. So he wrote me an endorsement and I submitted it. And, you know, of course, when this is all you want to do, your world is destroyed if they come along and say, nope, you're out. Right. Sure. And so I'm all pins and needles for months. And I send in this letter and they say. Oh, okay. You're waved. <laughs> like, thanks a lot. You know, you just completely The process
3: me. <laughs> is never quick. I mean, it's weeks or months to hear anything back.
0: Oh, absolutely. And thankfully the unit didn't kick me out while they were waiting. They're like, well, let's just keep you going and see what happens. And so anyway, long story short, that was my junior year, my senior year. I had the waiver, no problem. And it never came up again. And I got flight training and every flight doc who would look in my left ear, he would say, oh, you got a little scarring in there. I'd say, oh yeah, I had this thing when I was 12. Yeah. And so, yeah, I think to your point, It's a little harder to get in, but then once you're in, it's, I think, a little easier to stay. And I've got a whole other story that I'll save because I'm thinking about putting it in the book or I'm just not sure I'm ready to uh, tell that story yet. But I had a relatively major setback much later on and I came back from it and kept flying again. But just on that note, what are some of the ailments you saw in the pilots that you served with, especially the F-16 guys who are pulling a lot of Gs? By the time guys been doing it 10, 12 years, What are some of the things you typically see them come to you for?
3: That's a great question. There definitely are some conditions and injuries that we see pretty commonly and specifically the high performance guys, but the G's are essentially going to be loaded right down the the spinal column. And we call it the Z axis, as you know, Mm -hmm. our bodies were not designed or evolved depending on your belief system there to uh, sustain these high G's. We're used to being at one G. And so all of a sudden you, you multiply that times nine and you're doing that day in and day out. As you can imagine, you start to get, disc herniations and different compressive problems with your spine. So we see people with either bad low back pain, which kind of translates into sciatica or even worse, you know, the guys that are checking your six and you're looking backwards while you're having these G forces and that's a lot of strain on the cervical spine. So you start to see like people coming in with numbness and tingling in their fingertips, even like when it gets really advanced weakness in your arms. So that's definitely an occupational hazard. I think of flying high G performance one thing that's not talked about, I feel like, in the military, that's talked about a lot in space medicine, is just even the radiation exposure, too. Lots of radiation exposure when you're flying high in the, uh, in the sky and you don't have the ozone that's quite as protective. And I think just, like, the stress as well. That's one thing that I see more commonly in the folks that have been doing the job for a longer time is, you know, there's always that kind of time period in a pilot's career when they start to say, hey, I'm going to start taking care of my body a little bit before, you know, put my health in front of my occupation. And then all of a sudden, all this stuff pours out. You know, it's like, I've had all these conditions that are, you know, like now I'm getting to BA time and like, let's talk about all these things. That's right. Yeah. Stress and anxiety is something you guys don't really talk about. You know, there's a stigma to it. And obviously there's a huge occupational risk to mentioning things like that. But it's one of the things that when people consult me that they're pretty open about, especially when they feel like they have like the anonymity. Mm -hmm. You guys, it's a really super stressful just career path. And then you take into consideration, you're flying nights and you're, you know, switching back and forth with sleep schedules and all the stuff yeah. that goes along with that. So I write a lot about that stuff on my blog as well. These different things that affect the aviation community.
0: Well, and particularly for naval aviators uh, who go to the carrier, the night carrier landings, I think take years off your life. At least it felt like it did for me. I bet. But speaking of stress, so I wrote a blog some time ago about fighter pilot myths. And one of them is I said, oh, people think that fighter pilots only have girls. And I said, no, that's not true because I only have boys. (laughs) Of course, that made me the bunt of a, a bunch of jokes that i wasn't ever a real fighter pilot uh. but i had somebody comment that said actually there's a physiological response of the body that maybe affects i don't know if it's sperm count or whatever else but just talking about stress i'm gonna put you on the spot here. do you know is there anything to stress having an effect on or maybe the radiation but is there anything to fighter pilots having girls as, can you dispel that for us once and for all
3: I'd have to do a little research on PubMed, but I think probably the girls listening are probably getting offended that we're saying that radiation exposure like makes you more likely to have a female than a male. Maybe it's the opposite, Maybe right? it makes
0: them stronger. Yeah, absolutely.
3: Yeah, yeah. It's like the Spider-Man version of your progeny is uh, to be female versus male. But no, I don't know if anything is just about that. I've heard people say that. It seems like it goes in sequences, too, because we went through a period of time when I was at Aviano that none of the people in our squadron were having boys Then yeah, i heard everyone talking about that and then all of a sudden it was a string of everyone having boys and like then like nobody talks about the legend anymore yeah there's similar things in medicine too but i'll get back to you on that
0: okay no problem well if you flip an even coin a hundred times it's very likely that six or seven times in a row it's going to be a head or a tail right so there's always going to be those moments if you will but variations yeah exactly Cool, man. Well, gosh, what have we not talked about for flight surgeons? I want to get into a little bit more of what you're doing now and, and some of the uh, consulting, but what did I not ask you about flight surgeons and uh, what do people need to know?
3: I think we talked about a lot of the kind of common things that flight docs experience. And I'd love to hear more from your perspective too, about like what the experience is like when you go in to see the flight doc and how we could do a better job or some of like the good or bad experiences you've had, like with different flight surgeons and why that is.
0: No, that's a fair question because For the most part, I felt over my career, they were looking out for me, but there was a standard. Right. And so clearly, if I walk in with my arm dislocated, they're not going to say, Oh, you'll be fine, go fly. Right. So, there's certain things, like you said, where there's some interpretation. But for the most part, I had very good flight surgeons throughout my career and I was very grateful for them. You mentioned it earlier, but it is funny that for 19 years, nothing's ever bothering any pilot. Right. And on that 20th year, when you're getting close to your yeah. last flight, suddenly it's like, Oh, yeah, by the way, I've got this and that and this other thing. And because it's all about trying to get the right. Disability on the way out the door with the VA, so I always thought that was kind of funny.
3: We're just, you know, we're just acknowledging the things that you that you weren't really. Willing to acknowledge before, you know, yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah. Well, but like you said, it starts with being afraid of in the Navy, we used to call it NAMI. I think it's what Naval Aero Medical Institute or something like that. Yep. You get mm-hmm. the NAMI whammy. You didn't want that. And I almost got it and persevered through it. But later on, like you said, you know, they'll work with you because there's an investment there and they want to keep you going. And I think in some cases, I could be wrong, but I think in some cases they say, well, if you're safe, let's see how you do. And then they kind of. I don't know if they just get data that way, like, oh, we're going to send him to the centrifuge and see now that he's had this issue, whatever it is. And I've known people that have come back to flying from broken bones and neck surgeries and heart surgeries. I don't know if I can point to anyone who's had a neck surgery, but I've known a lot of people that have had a lot of interesting things that can come back to it that probably would have kept them out the door if they weren't already in the door. You know what I
3: mean? Yeah, no, I've been pretty impressed with some things that I've seen pilot's either go through or have and still be able to fly an aircraft. You know, in the, specifically in the civilian world, I mean, if you look at some of the things that they waive or they give special issuances for, you can have monocular vision. You can have a prosthetic limb and get a, uh, what they call a soda, when you can just prove that you're safe to fly. And and they have like a flight instructor essentially evaluate you and you can prove that you're safe to fly, then FAA will approve you. Maybe only for like a class three, but, but it's always been really rewarding for me as a flight doc to advocate for someone, you know, that, like you said, you know, this is your vocation. This is something you dreamed about doing. And then when that's taken from you, even temporarily and be able to advocate for that person and be successful and get them back in the aircraft. Yeah. It's a really rewarding experience to be part of that too. Cause oh, I bet, but you guys are a tough group. You guys are, especially the fighter <laughs> pilots. Side, man, you guys are an interesting group.
0: Oh, I'm sure no doubt about it. You reminded me just now of our F4 guest fingers, appropriately titled because he had uh, his thumb blown off by a surface air missile in Vietnam, or at least so badly mangled that the Vietnamese <laughs> finished the job for him. And, and to your point, right when he was finally repatriated to the US, they took a look at him and, and he was at Rio in F-4s and then later F-14s. And he said, look, I can still do my job. And they said, okay, go for it. So obviously a little different for the civilian side of it, but the military difficult to get in, a little easier to stay in and they'll generally work with you. So cool. Well, hey man, tell me about your consulting thing. Is that like for folks that want to be military aviators or what is it and where can people find it?
3: Yeah. So my website's GoFlightMedicine, just all one word, GoFlightMedicine. Okay. There's a lot of different information. There. I started off as kind of an informational blog that I started similar to probably the blog that you started. Just like, we're not busy enough. We need to take on other things. I think there's some ways
0: that <laughs> exactly that
3: fighter pilots and doctors are similar. And it's kind of evolved into something more. And I'm actually in the process of partnering with another company that does consulting for people that are interested in joining the military to become aviators and interested in giving professional advice to how you best do that. And so what I do is I kind of provide some of the medicine, aviation medicine consulting. So again, I kind of mentioned people that have a medical condition or injury or feel like they don't meet medical standards might contact me and ask specific questions. I offer the option to do that anonymously or to kind of, you know, do it in a more personal setting where we review medical records and kind of can give you some feedback on best path forward and what your options are. And that can be for people that are interested in enjoying civilian aviation and becoming a commercial pilot or just want to get their class three and, you know, take on aviation as a hobby or those that want to become a military aviator and then even on the other side i've had some people contact me asking me about va type of stuff you know they're getting mm-hmm. near the end of their career and they had questions about that but maybe they also want to continue flying commercial when they leave the military and there's different things that i think that pilots need to know about that you know i've definitely seen people that as we talked about before that maybe claim too much stuff you know and then they find <laughs> out that after the fact you know like those va records uh, might suggest that now you're medically disqualified to fly whoops you know so (laughs) there's a variety of things i'm consulted on about asking those questions but it's really fun it's been enjoyable to it's very different than my primary job which is working in the er which is an absolutely insane setting caring for tons of patients per hour Mm. and um really sick people sometimes homeless people all kinds of people in crises and the difference between sitting with a a pilot or a person that's interested in aviation for an hour and like hey let's figure out how we can keep you flying or get you flying if that's your desire so
0: Yeah. yeah That's really cool. So goflightmedicine.com. A guy with your credentials, I'd be surprised if you did that pro bono. I mean, I assume there's a small fee for your professional uh, expertise, yeah?
3: Yeah, it is a business, yeah. There is a a small fee, yes.
0: Yeah. Hey, I mean, if I was... 18 again and wanting to be a fighter pilot. Uh, (laughs) that's an investment as far as I'm concerned. And same for the folks getting out about to go to the airlines. If you can spend 20 years in the military and then another 20 or so in the airlines, that's worth it because that's a lucrative career. So cool, man. Well, hey, as we begin to transition and wrapping up here, I mean, is that the future for you? You got the ER thing, you got the goflightmedicine.com thing. Did you say earlier you're going into the Air National Guard as well?
3: Yeah, I'm actually leaving the reserves moving to the Air National Guard. I'm going to be doing a mission with the Air National Guard called CCAT, which is Critical Care Aeromedical Evacuation Team. And that's in the Air Force side. And that actually will be as close to what some people think a flight surgeon is with operating in the back of an aircraft. But we actually, we run an ICU in the back of an aircraft. And so, we're essentially bringing wounded and critically ill, you know, fallen service members back home. We pick them up. And so, a lot of these patients are on a ventilator or they're critically ill and you have to be either an ER doctor or a critical care doctor or a trauma surgeon, or I think anesthesiologist as well, to do that job. Hmm. It's something I've always wanted to do. So, I'm joining the Air National Guard to be able to do that. There was an opening here in Utah, Air National Guard. So, cool. Yeah, moving forward, we're going to do that and continue to do the aviation medicine, the emergency medicine, and yeah, just some fun, creative things like you're doing with podcasts and writing and, and just enjoying the mountains too.
0: Yeah, well, in case you don't keep busy enough as it is,
3: huh? <laughs> yeah, you, well, you should talk, Jello.
0: yeah trust me i'm looking for ways to lighten the load but apollo this has been a lot of fun so our final question as you probably know if you listen to the show is that we always get people to explain their fun call signs and so rocky Jetik apollo i don't know i'm not seeing it yet but how did someone come up with that
3: i was at aviano these are f-16 guys that gave me that call sign okay and so it is an acronym apollo but one there's the Rocky, which is the call sign my mom gave me, uh, very which is good. a little bit of an unusual name. And so there's a Rocky and Apollo Creed. So there's that tie there. Okay. And there's also the acronym, which is Ambient pills overdue on long long O R E. So O R E is a big, massive base level exercise that we had.
0: Uh-huh.
3: And essentially, what happened? You know, I'm responsible for bringing over the sleep aids when the guys that flip from days to nights. And so I get there to distribute the meds and their controlled substance, so each one has to go to the specific person. And they had switched their night schedule, but they didn't make me aware of this. And so I had all the wrong names for the wrong guys and gals. And so they were <laughs> the guys that were supposed to get them were pretty upset. Of course, it's my fault, you know, because it's never a pilot's fault. So they said, ambient pills overdue on long, long ORE. And then they said, because you totally jacked this up, you will be called Apollo with the last name Jeddick, apologetic for the rest of your life. So there's also the way it flows with my last name, apologetic.
0: It's like a triple entendre. That's pretty good. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So that's All pretty right. good. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's we great. didn't really touch on that. You know, a flight surgeon might derisively be called a pusher once in a while because you guys also give the go and no go pills, right?
3: That's true. Yeah. That's a whole nother conversation.
0: Mm-hmm. Just to circle back, you said your mom named you Rocky or is Rocky an alias?
3: My mom named me Rocky, but it's just kind of funny. In Pilot World, it's like she gave me a call sign. Yeah, but what were you saying to your brothers?
0: Yeah, my brother was born Marcelo, and uh, he was named Rocky as an alias from a young age. And unfortunately, we lost Rocky last summer. So uh, when you reached out and I saw your name, I said, oh, good, we'll have to get him on the show because our second Rocky on the show. But anyway.
3: Well, I'm sorry to hear that.
0: He had a heart situation while he was riding a motorcycle, actually. and mm. And so the heart situation caused the accident. The accident caused the death. So yeah, it was a big bummer our whole family still dragging that around. You know, you, you get better, but you never get over it.
3: No, I hear that. Yeah. So, and I mean, obviously you guys know in your career, I'm sure you've known or know of quite a few guys that you've lost. I mean, I, I definitely know quite a few as well. It's a dangerous
0: game. You guys oh, play. absolutely. No, I saw two friends perish right in front of me in an S3 and it was awful. And I tell you, it's funny, just a real quick extra bit here is I somewhat thought Death wasn't that big a deal. Like I was a little bit flippant about it to be honest. But <laughs> as soon as it struck my two year older brother, uh it was a different story, you know. It brought me to my knees. So uh yeah. You know, life is precious, I guess, when it comes right down to it.
3: Yeah, I mean, I agree with that. I see life and death every day in the ER, but another story for another day. But I was in the unfortunate circumstance in Italy to take off as a four ship and land as a free ship. Yeah, and unfortunately our flight lead didn't make it. So yeah. it's definitely there's some gravity in the mission that you guys do for sure.
0: Yeah. Hey, just real quick, I know we kind of wrapped up the flight surgeon discussion, but just speaking about that, will flight surgeons ever go out to like a crash scene? I mean, is there going to be some element of, oh, I know there's a whole term like for missed or whatever, but do you guys get involved mm-hmm. in if there's a fatality getting out and kind of checking remains and things like that?
3: Yeah, actually, that's something we didn't talk about, but that's part of our training mishap response. Yeah. There's kind of three different levels of that. So being the, the first stage, which would be the people that actually go to the scene and attempt to provide any medical care and then there's also the person that gets designated to collect evidence and already start to do the mishap response and then even fast forward to the actual mishap board there's always a flight doc on the board to kind of determine what's the cause of the um we're focusing on the medical stuff the human factor stuff the psychological the mental health stuff all those things The pilot member medical member so yeah that's something we do and we train in.
0: Well, flight surgeons are a big part of military aviation, and I really appreciate you, uh, Apollo, coming and helping explain it today on the Fighter Pilot Podcast.
3: Hey, well, thanks for having me. It was fun to, to talk to you. I appreciate it.
0: All right. Rocky Balboa, Apollo Creed, apologetic. All right. Yeah, I probably should have seen that coming. Anyway, thanks again, Rocky, for sharing your expertise with us today. What a great interview. And for our listeners, if you have more questions on any aviation medical topics, be sure to check out Rocky's website, goflightmedicine.com. Cyclone, you were here for all that and big picture thoughts again on the discussion before we break out a few topics. I thought
2: it was an excellent interview. It was very interesting. So a lot of Rocky's comments are very spot on with what flight surgeons do and how they do it. I thought it was interesting how the Air Force uses their flight surgeons differently in terms of where they're assigned. Mm -hmm. So if I understood Rocky's comments correctly, it sounds as though Air Force flight surgeons are more in the individual squadrons. Whereas for the Navy, as you had mentioned, they're at the wing. So they're at a kind of like the next level up, and they're in charge of the pilots and the air crew in several squadrons. That's right. necessarily opposed to a dedicated squadron in and of itself.
0: On the other hand, the Air Force squadron sounds bigger than a typical Navy F-18 squadron with more aircraft and more people, yes. more people being the relevant part of this discussion, of course. But okay, well, yeah, I had a question about the differences anyway, because you spent a lot of time with Navy flight surgeons, and he had limited experience with the Navy. So any other differences between the services? In terms of the
2: services, well, I guess for physiologists, again, I can only speak for, for the Navy. Say mm-hmm. Where we work is very different. So physiologists in our operational billets, we are actually assigned on the flight line, specifically, usually in the safety shop Okay. at a command. In all my years as a physiologist, I never once worked in a medical clinic, even though I'm a, a medical department staff officer. So I was always in the safety shop around on the flight line, the PR shop or something like that. So Flight surgeons, I know, very much would like to get out of the clinic more and be able to get into the squadron spaces. So they're kind of jealous in that respect. But where we work is very different. Another difference, physiologists are very much experts in the aviation life support systems equipment. So your survival vest, what the equipment that's in the vest itself, so like the radio and the flares, Whenever I briefed aircrew or pilots, I told them, look, the most important things is if you eject or if you ditch in the water, you have to be seen and you have to be heard. Mm. So you have got to know how those flares or the, the mirrors work, and you have got to know how your radio works. Yeah. If you don't remember anything else from this brief, it's those two things <laughs> your signaling devices and your radio. So
0: yeah.
2: physiologists, are, we're experts in that and the survival equipment. Yeah. Also, Physiologists are trained as aviation safety officers specifically. So, as a requirement for us before we go to an operational billet, we go through the aviation safety officer school in Pensacola. So, we get trained in mishap investigation techniques, writing hazard reports, and so forth. So, even though we are not formal members of the board, we often act as consultants. Mm-hmm. We're trained to act as aviation safety officers, and most flight surgeons don't do that. Now, they do get trained in aircraft investigation techniques, especially for injury patterns or blood and fluid sample collections or forensic sample collections in the case of a fatality or something like that. Right. Even though flight surgeons are a formal member of the board, they don't necessarily go through the formal training that a physiologist does.
0: Gotcha. So I'm seeing a lot of commonalities, but a lot of differences here, too, between the physiologists and the flight surgeons. So, Mm -hmm. for example, they're more medically involved, right? So they're probably going to be doing those go and no-go pills. I can't imagine you were involved with that. But you both did, like he was talking about the anti-G straining maneuver. And of course, that was the whole point of our first episode Mm -hmm. with you way back on episode six, which, oh, by the way, was what made me think to have you come on and help out today (laughs) is because, like you said, you're involved with the safety stuff, as are they. And bad on me for not even thinking to mention mishap response and investigations until the very end of the interview. So there's a lot of commonalities here, but there's some differences too. So Does the Air Force have, I don't think I asked Rocky this, but do they have the equivalent of what you did in the Navy? They do,
2: yes. So there are Air Force physiologists, so a shout out to all my Air Force physiologist colleagues. And they do very similar things as to what Navy physiologists do, at least in terms of human performance aspects and aviation life support equipment. So I've worked a lot with Air Force physiologists on Ejection seats, emergency oxygen systems, CFEt,
0: controlled flight into terrain, mm-hmm. G
2: lock, you know, G induced loss of consciousness. You know, going back to that episode six. So I've worked a lot with them on those types of issues.
0: So from your point of view, Air Force and Navy physiologists and Air Force, Navy, flight docs, as much as you can tell, I mean, again, probably some service differences, but I would hope a lot in common as well.
2: Oh, very much so. I will say for the Navy's aerospace physiologists, we do a lot of the aviation water survival training. So every four years, when you come through for your swim, physical The dreaded helo dunker and even fighter pilots have to go through the panic (laughs) and the drum, as we used to call it. So Navy physiologists, we're the model manager for that training. So in terms of the curricula and the the training, and we provide that training at aviation survival training centers. Okay, To my knowledge, Air Force physiologists do not do that. And that primarily is a service-related difference because... I mean, let's face it, Air Force, you know, they fly on really long runways at land-based facilities with cushy golf courses adjacent to it. Navy fighter pilots are landing on a a posted stamp size pitching carrier deck at night in the dark. And if you go in the drink or, you know, if your helicopter on takeoff and landing, the skid catches the flight deck safety net and it rolls over into the water, that water survival egress. Inflating your life preserver, getting out your signaling device, that's our bread and butter as Navy physiologists. We provide that training. We do that training. We're experts in that. And that's something that the Air Force just does not do.
0: Well, 20-year-old Owen from Michigan, I hope you're listening because you submitted a question to the show that's coming up. Sue just took a stab at answering that. So we'll uh, finish that up in a moment. But All right, Cyclone, uh, final thing I had from our interview. You have to help me out here. Have you ever heard of this notion that male fighter pilots are more likely to have daughters than sons? I mean, come on. I swear I've heard this somewhere, except not just ready room banter, but there's something to it, apparently. I don't know. (laughs) You tell me.
2: You know, I have to admit Until I heard that in Rocky's interview, I'm embarrassed to say that I had never heard that. Oh, really? Okay. I obviously have missed out on some really important ready room discussions (laughs) or this is the difference between a flight surgeon's role as your primary care physician and the intimate things you may discuss in the exam room Uh as opposed to saying something to the physiologist going down the P way type of thing, you know, the (laughs) passageway. Right. But you know, now that I think about it, I do remember hearing or seeing kind of like you did. It's like, I think I've seen this or heard this. There's been a couple of studies say about, I don't know, maybe 2009 and maybe a more recent one in 2019 that looked at this and both studies looked to see if there was a sex ratio difference, you know, typically more girls, and they didn't find anything that was statistically significant, although there was a trend maybe towards more girls. And I always get a little nervous when I see something about a trend towards significance. Well, how do you know it was going towards significance? How do you know it wasn't running away? Thing? <laughs> so I suppose it's possible because there are things like excessive heat or radar or radiation or noise or vibration these are all things that could affect (laughs) sperm cell development okay i suppose it's possible i don't know if it's probable now you got me curious i'm gonna have to go look this up more
0: okay well if you find something out let us know and we'll circle back not that we're going to solve any giant problem here because as we mentioned i've got friends and you probably do too have boys girls both anyway all right it's just a fun thing all right cyclone any other thoughts from our discussion on flight surgeons today so no i just want to reiterate that it's really an
2: air medical team Mm -hmm. that helps take care of pilots and air crews so you know you got the flight surgeon you have the aerospace operational physiologist you also have other important members like the enlisted hospital corpsman. There are at the clinic yep. that see you and treat you in conjunction with the, the flight surgeon. There are enlisted hospital corpsmen that are specially trained in aeromedical aspects. And those are our aerospace physiology technicians. There's also naval aerospace optometrists and experimental psychologists. Wow. And the most recent wow. member to the family are aerospace physicians assistants. Mm-hmm. So there's a whole team of us who work together to keep pilots and air crew fit and healthy and to keep you in the aircraft and flying.
0: and then sometimes like the blue angels and the thunderbirds they'll have one or more of each of these right because they have to be in tip-top shape oh, yes and then air wings as we identified in the navy will have a bunch that are shared And the air force we talked about all that so All right. Well, good stuff. Tell you what, though, Cyclone, before we wrap up the episode, I have some housekeeping to attend to and I want to keep you around. So if you don't mind, I've got a few listener questions and maybe I'll let you take a stab at them or you can punt or whatever. But the first is an email from Siggy Lee Lewis who asks, I've noticed many pictures and videos of the F 14 and the Hornet doing a real normal flight, even in high speed and altitude with the arresting hook down. Now, why is that? I would think that would increase some drag. What do you think there, Cyclone? You've probably seen this.
2: Oh, yes. As far as I know, that at a resting hook, that tail hook, mm-hmm. that's down because the aircraft is getting ready to land, especially on a carrier deck That's right. where you're trying to catch the third wire, you know, which is a little bit further down the deck. You don't want to get the first wire because that's too close to the front, and you would know this far better than I would. <laughs> If you skip or you miss the hook, you have to do a bolter. Right. You essentially have to go around. So, And I have seen that hook deployed on aircraft that are coming into land at land-based airfields. And that's usually because the aircraft had a mechanical issue or suspected. You have a brake caution light or there's something with your hydraulics, perhaps, and you think that maybe you may not have the braking action when you land. It's like, okay. Right. I need to catch the hook at the rigged gear at the end of the land runway. I have seen
0: that. Okay. Well, I think those are all mostly right. You said the front of the landing area. I suppose if you think about it from the way you're approaching it, but it's the back of the ship and some carriers now only have three wires. So I think they target right on top of the two, Yeah. but yeah, Siggy, the short answer to your question is the drag is negligent and we do lower the hook early when we will be landing on the ship or taking a trap at the field. In a sense, I suppose you could call it flexing because you could lower the hook the same time you lower the landing gear right before you land, but it's just something naval aviators do. And I think it distinguishes us a little bit from others. So yeah, that's a good question though. Yeah. All right. Next, let's take a phone call. Hey, Jello. My name is Blake and I'm from
2: Seattle. I love the podcast and Really appreciate you guys letting uh, non-aviators such as myself get an inside look into your world. My question is this. In DCS, when I start up the Hornet or increase the throttle from idle, there's a distinctive groaning sound that I don't hear in other aircraft. I'm assuming it's accurate because Eagle Dynamics does their homework, but it makes me wonder, what is that sound and why don't other planes make it, like the Viper or the Eagle?
0: Thanks. All right, Blake, thanks for the question. And you're right, Digital Combat Simulator is very accurate. The few times when I get around to doing it, I am always amazed at the visuals and everything about it, other than the actual flying, because they just can't put the stick forces in or obviously have you pulling Gs in your living room. But otherwise, yes, the sights and sounds are very accurate. And I would say the answer to that question is it has to do with airflow through the engine. And just like airflow through an instrument like a tuba, Uh some points, it makes sound, and that's the point of a tuba, but not necessarily the point of an F-18's engine. But sometimes at certain speeds and pressures, it just does that. And some aircraft also do it. I think the F-16 that I flew used to have a little bit of a hum when it was starting, but not all of them do. But the S-3 Viking did. You might remember our episode with Slate and my buddy talking about the whoop, whoop, when it was adding thrust coming into land. And again, that was just airflow through the engine acting essentially like an instrument, I would say. All right. Cyclone, you're still with us. Any thoughts on that one? <laughs> S3 Vikings had very much a distinctive whoop whoop. Oh, yeah.
2: I was stationed in Jacksonville, yeah, Florida, and that was one of the last naval air stations that had Vikings. And I remember running okay. in the evening and hearing that. It's like, oh, that's an S3. You know exactly what it is.
0: All right, let's see. I've got two more emails. The first is from Brandon Parr, who's a friend of the show, who says, several years ago, I became an instrument maker, speaking of instruments, and the experience changed me in profound ways. I effectively became a professional problem solver and in turn learned to relax more in life. How did you change as a human being during your career as a fighter pilot? How did this experience shape who you are today? Well, that's a really profound question, Brandon. And I would say in thinking about this, I am definitely more disciplined and analytical, probably even methodical than I was before as part of my training. I'm also constantly assessing risk, whether it's something that I need to do or not. And if I do need to do it, what's the risk of it? And is it worth doing, for example? And the other thing is I would say I'm always trying to build situational awareness, whether I'm flying or just at a restaurant, or out and about. I'm always trying to figure out what is going on around me and do I have an accurate picture of it. Now, I would call all those good things. The downsides of my career as a fighter pilot, and this is just me personally, I won't speak for all of them, but I find I am definitely more critical and less tolerant of poor performance, particularly my own than I was before. So I have a very difficult time watching other people do PowerPoint presentations because of my Top Gun murder board experiences. I just have very low tolerance for anything like that. And the other thing is I am punctual to a fault. I hate tardiness, my own and everyone else's. And my wife has to remind me that in social settings, we don't have to show up at the party exactly at six o'clock. We can be fashionably late, but I just like being on time because when you're flying around the carrier or you're doing close air support or just at Top Gun when you're starting a brief or a debrief, man, you get used to being on time really, really quickly. So, yeah, that's a great question, Brandon. And uh, Cyclone, let me put it to you. You were around a lot of fighter pilots during your career. Any thoughts on Brandon's question? That is a very good
2: question. And (laughs) all the things you had mentioned are very much spot on. So, all the fighter pilots I've ever worked with RD, they are very disciplined, very methodical. And they are constantly asking questions, like you said, to build the situational awareness and Mm. tardiness or the lack of tardiness. That is a very big thing. So even for myself, you know, if you show up 15 minutes early to the brief, you're late type of thing. (laughs) So here at the FAA, I always get comments. It's like, wow, your meetings always start on time and they end on time. It's like, you're right. (laughs) For me personally, I guess. I've always been really curious about things and always kind of had an analytical bent. Being the Navy physiologist kind of made me even more so, especially when I did a lot more aircraft investigation huh. type of things that really took off with that.
0: That's good. And you made me think of one other thing, which is I would say myself and most other fighter pilots are also like lifelong learners and improvers, right? So we're not happy to just always shoot a 72 on your favorite golf course. We want to get down in the 70s and 60s. I don't play golf, so I probably screwed all that up. But point is, you know, whatever I'm doing, I want to get better at it, including podcasting. You can decide for yourself if 130 episodes later I've improved at all, but lifelong learners for sure. And one other thing is cuz I mentioned it in the interview with Rocky is I used to have a certain outlook on death and our own mortality, if you will. Mm-hmm. I think that changed a lot this last summer as I identified, but Yeah. That's a really profound question. It's a good one. You could just about write a book on that for people of other professions as well. All right. Our last question of the day is our email from Owen, who we identified earlier from Michigan, who says, I was curious about your advice on either the U S air force or Navy as to the characteristics of both branches, parentheses, lifestyle, travel, pros, cons, aircraft, etc.), and what you would suggest to a young aspiring military pilot like myself in making a decision between the two branches. Both have some of the most advanced aircraft in the world, and I would be honored to join either, but I'm just having a tough time deciding which one is for me. So, oh, and I'm snickering here because somewhere out there is this really funny write-up that I wish I could find. And if I do, I'll send it to you. But it's about the differences between the Air Force and the Navy. And of course, I'm snickering about it because it tends to lean Navy. But honestly, I only have my one life experience and I wanted to join the Navy because I grew up around the ocean and I come from a seafaring family. But I truly do believe both services are equally professional. I've met pilots from both and served with both. I would say either one, you can't go wrong. Now, That being said, as Cyclone talked about before, right, the idea of deploying on and landing on aircraft carriers has to either appeal to you or frighten you. Well, if it frightens you, that's a good thing too if you still wanna join the Navy, but it either inspires you or it turns you off, and that's a big one because it offers things that you will never have an opportunity to do anywhere else in life, but it also requires certain sacrifices and certain levels of risk. I don't know how else to answer this other than visit some different bases. If you can, maybe at air shows, if nothing else, talk to people from both services, figure out which one resonates for you and who knows, maybe apply to both and let the chips fall where they may, depending on who responds. Now, if they both want to take you, okay. Otherwise it's a decision only you can make. It was relatively easy for me, but I do have a lot of respect for the air force. And if you told me that's the way you wanted to go, I would not tell you you're wrong. One last thing you can do, Owen, is join our Facebook group. It's called The Pit. It's for aspiring military pilots. And you can ask your question there because there are people on there that help each other out who have been in the Navy, in the Air Force, been in the Marine Corps, in the Air Force, or at least the Air National Guard. And so you could ask there and you might get different answers. But yeah, nobody can answer that one but you. All right, Cyclone, I'm interested in your thoughts on this one too, though.
2: Go <laughs> Navy, beat Army. Feed air force. <laughs> so but you, you're absolutely correct. I mean, just, if you love to fly, it really doesn't matter necessarily which service. So I will say, and again, because physiologists do a lot of water survival training, I am always astounded at how many people join the Navy and are not comfortable in the water. Yeah, It's like, why would you do that? And that does happen. And that is certainly not a barrier, but that's one of the things that we ask people who apply to be a physiologist How comfortable are you in the water? And if you're not comfortable getting your face wet in the shower, this might not be the profession for you. But I know a lot of aerospace Air Force physiologists and that they do very similar things as we do. That might be an option, too.
0: Yeah. That's a good point. I didn't even mention all that. And for me, I like I said, grew up around the water. I played water polo, so I never had any fear of water, but some people do, and that could be a decider. But I tell you what, I wouldn't make a decider. Owen is in your email, you asked about the aircraft and they both have what well, how did you put it? advanced aircraft. I would not join for the aircraft. I would join for the lifestyle and for the people. The one that resonates best with you. All right. Well, that will do it for listener questions. I want to thank you for that. In our closing bumper here in a moment, you can find out how to submit your questions to be answered on a future show, either email or phone. Now, before we wrap up, we've got a handful of new Patreon supporters. We're always so thrilled for that. We've got strike leads, Scott Dewar, Jonathan Tumbles, Sean Jones, Taylor Watson, Cameron McCormick, Jeremy Ray, Gary Johnson and Mark Cruz. And we have a new Airboss, Jason Spears. Now, Cyclone, check this out. Jason and 30 other, roughly, Airbosses, these guys are awesome. They contribute $100 a month to the show, if you can believe that, every single month. And by doing so, they get a lot of really cool perks, such as I send them a fighter pilot podcast polo shirt. I send them an autographed photo suitable for framing. Every month, we have a 30 minute one on one Zoom chat with either me or boat or select past guests. And we just have a lot of fun on Patreon. So I want to thank our Air Bosses, including Jason Spears and all our other Air Bosses, as well as all our Patreon supporters who keep the show going because we just couldn't do it without you guys. And one of our Patreon supporters, Cyclone, check this out, Wes, told me just the other day that he was recently selected for Air Force Officer Training School and Pilot Training. So publicly, Congratulations, Wes. Go tear it up, dude. Yes, indeed. That is awesome. Yeah. All right. Well, we can wrap it up here with the views expressed in this presentation are the personal views of the hosts and our guest, and do not necessarily represent the position of the Department of Defense or its components or Cyclone, I'm adding this just for you, the Federal Aviation Administration. So Cyclone, it was great having you back on the show after so long. Thanks for stopping by today and helping us understand flight surgeons and better understand physiologists.
2: Hey, it's been my pleasure. This was fun. And again, thank you for the invitation.
0: Oh, you're welcome. Well, keep in touch and do good work out there. And for everyone else, that will do it for this week. But we'll be along next time for his customary end of month Warbird episode. And apparently he's dialing the Wayback Machine all the way to 11 on this one. Until then, take care, be well, and we'll see you next time here on the Fighter Pilot Podcast.
1: So long. You've been listening to the Fighter Pilot Podcast, brought to you by BBR Productions. Got a question for the show? Email us at questions at fighterpilotpodcast.com. Or leave a message on our listener line at 877-BOC-101. That's 877 4101 Be sure to follow us on your favorite social media platform and check out our website, fighterpilotpodcast.com. For exclusive content and to help support the show, check out our Patreon page. Thanks for listening.